I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. It's a gorgeous design. Tom Clark, frontman of indie rock band The Enemy... The boxy lines and the barrel edges. Loves a great car. On the Land Rover badge, it says Solihull Warwickshire. Every time I drive it, I, I feel immensely proud of that. Proud because it's made in the place that's always been his home, the Midlands. It's close with the Spitfire, but I think it's probably one of the most important things Britain ever made, and therefore one of the most important things that the Midlands ever made. This is Made in the Midlands, an original commission by the Coventry UK City of Culture, hosted by Adrian Goldberg. Hello and welcome to Midlanders and non-Midlanders alike. I'm trying to put people from the middle of England on the map. We've always been there, of course, somewhere between Manchester and Oxford. But many of the successful Midlanders I've spoken to for this podcast say they face a mixture of bewilderment, indifference, ignorance and even pity when they try to explain where they're from. So regard this as a beginner's guide to Middle England, whether it's the place you call home or the place you don't know what to call because you can't be totally sure exactly where it is. Episode 6, Tom Clark. Tom was a founding member of The Enemy, the indie band who began at Warwickshire College in Coventry. His family had moved to the city from Birmingham because they thought the schools were better. It was at the Empire in Coventry that the enemy played some of their earliest gigs. It was at the Empire that Tom met his wife-to-be. It was at the Empire that he proposed to her on stage. Tom's been involved in helping run the venue in its various guises in various ways. He still is. And that's where he met Adrian, at the HMV Empire on Hartford Street. Warning, this episode contains some wisely unsafe use of an inflatable banana. Thank you.
So I'm now uh, recording. Tom, just introduce yourself, please. Tell us who you are and where we are. Hello, I am Tom Clark, a small man from the Midlands, and we're uh, in the Empire in Coventry, which is a, a beautiful new music venue that I'm proud to be slightly involved with. This place then obviously means a lot to you. What does the Midlands mean to you? It's home is, is the main thing. It's wherever we've been touring throughout the world and we've been to some pretty strange places. There's something, you know, whether you're flying back into Birmingham Airport or you're driving back in from, from somewhere else, there's just that feeling. Everyone has that place that feels like home and this is it for me. Would you see yourself as being made in the Midlands? Yeah, I, everything that has shaped my life up until this point has really happened because of the Midlands. The, the bulk of who I am is because of where I grew up and the people I was surrounded with. So yeah, I, I was definitely, definitely shaped here. Made in the Midlands, I'm proud of it. Yeah. I grew up in Castle Bromwich, which is Solihull or Birmingham, depending on who you're trying to impress. Um, but it's a little 80s housing estate next to a motorway, not far from the Jaguar plant and the Dunlop factory. And it's it's where they built the, the Spitfire and right on the brink of a, a quite industrialized area. It's just this little residential place. So I lived there until I was 16 and then we moved over this way. What connection did you feel with those places of industry in your midst? I've always been a little bit fascinated with industry. I remember as a, a little kid driving through, I guess, Spaghetti Junction and, and seeing all the old factories and there are men in there making things and those things are going to go places and be used all around the world. Then those things go out into the world and they're used by thousands of people in totally different environments to the one that they're made in. I don't know whether I'm fascinated by industry because I grew up surrounded by it or if I was born elsewhere, if I would have still been fascinated by industrialised places. But it used to be what bound communities together. Everyone worked pretty much for the same employer, whether it was a steel town or a, a, a mining town or, or a car town like, like Cov. We don't really have that anymore. And I, I feel a little bit gutted that I missed it, to be honest. I do genuinely think that it, it brought something to society and communities that's perhaps missing now. And that sense of loss, I think, permeates your songwriting. Yeah, as the enemy was forming and as we were writing our, our first record, lots of the automotive industry was still in Coventry and, and the Peugeot factory closing down inspired the song You're Not Alone. And I think that's, it was 3,000 jobs and you immediately feel the effect of that in the community. And so industry has a good year, the community feels it. Industry has a bad year or closes down, devastates the community. And so much of it is gone now that it doesn't hold such a significant place in the community. But our experience of it, and I think it was the tail end of it, was those, those 3,000 jobs going overnight and just this sense of fear. There were plenty of people I knew worked in that factory or in businesses that relied on on that factory and there's just this fear of well where does the money come from now how do we carry on living our lives and it's a very midland story as well isn't it all of the midlands has had to to grapple with that loss and that change in its identity yeah I, 
I don't know if it's unique to the Midlands. There's been this shift from us making things. And I don't really know what we do as a country now. It's much trickier to define who we are as a nation. And I think that you can see that at a local level, towns like Coventry and Sheffield. But I think that it, it permeates beyond that and, and to you know on a national level, maybe you'd say we do finance. You know, we, the financial industries are, are what's important. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe the result of it is a lot of people have a better quality of life. I, I don't feel like that. I feel like it benefits the few rather than the many. But I, I'm not a politician, I'm not a, an economist. Maybe I'm being romantic and maybe industrial revolutions aren't as as nice as they seem retrospectively. But I've always sort of enjoyed knowing that the Midlands used to make stuff. And that was a source of pride for us Midlanders. Yeah, for, for me, I'm obsessed with cars, but one of the best examples of it is you've got Enzo Ferrari winning Le Mans and winning Formula One, dominating motorsports from Modena in Italy, miles and miles and miles away, before globalisation was really a thing. And a bloke in Coventry designs the Jaguar E-Type and Enzo Ferrari looks at it and says it's the most beautiful car ever made. And that should be a source of pride. You know, that thing was made in Coventry. And, and my granddad put the chrome on it. I'll never forget my granddad telling me that Jaguars were the best cars. He's completely wrong. They were like <laughs> the V12s they were making at the time are a nightmare. I know I owned one. It's ridiculously complex. But he told me it was the best car. And as far as he was concerned, it was. It was better than a Rolls-Royce. It was better than any Mercedes. Better than a Ferrari. And that sort of sticks. And I think that that is is how communities feel proud about what they do and it helps to define who you are as an individual but also as a community you know literally from from an individual level to a family level of we're a jag family to then a community level of we the community make the the, the jaguar type the prettiest car in the world and and so it's what you do in these these small cities is hugely important to the, the way that a nation thinks of itself. And the Midlands has always, we've always made stuff. And we're really good at it, apart from Triumph. <laughs> we ask all our guests on the Made in the Midlands podcast, Tom, to name their Midlands masterpiece. Now that can be a place, it can be a work of art. I just wonder if your Midlands masterpiece might then be a piece of automotive engineering. Yeah, I mean, it, it would be. It would be a Land Rover. In this case, a very specific one. It would be my Land Rover, <laughs> which is a, a 1966 Series 2A. And on the Land Rover badge, it says Solihull, Warwickshire. And Every time I drive it, I, I feel immensely proud of that. There's this statistic, I don't know how accurate it is, for over half the world's population, the first car that they saw was a Land Rover. And that will have had a badge on it that says Solihull, Warwickshire. And it will have been made in that plant just off sort of Load Lane in Solihull 
you know, I used to drive past that that plant as a kid, looking out the window, and they'd always have a Land Rover parked right out front. They were so proud of the product they made, and that car, you can look at it so many ways. It's either a tool, it will get you across a muddy field in winter, it will carry stuff, it will tow stuff. It's towed so many of my modern broken down cars. You can put seven people in it, it's tiny, but you can put seven people in it legally. Or you can view it as a piece of art. The the boxy lines and the barreled sort of edges, it's, it's a gorgeous design because of its simplicity. Or you can view it as a historical object because it's liberated countries. It's also probably invaded some that it shouldn't have, but it it's it's been there to moderate tensions on home soil and it's served our agricultural system which has provided food for our nation for so many years it's close with the Spitfire but I think it's probably one of the most important things Britain ever made and therefore one of the most important things that the Midlands ever made that's a rhapsody, that is. So your Midlands masterpiece, the 1966 Land Rover Discovery, made series and badged. Land Rover Series 2A. And badged, made in Sullyhill, Warwickshire. Beautiful, beautiful. How did your family initially come to the Midlands? Um, both sides of the family were Irish, actually not far from each other. But if I go back to my grandparents' generation, on the one side, it was the simplest. She'd come from Ireland and moved to Birmingham. I don't know why. And my other grandma lived up in Lincoln. And I still to this day don't really understand the logic of this. But when the Second World War broke out, she decided it would be safer to live just down the road from where they were building the aeroplanes that were fighting it than to live on the coast in Lincoln. Um, but there, apparently there were some fears that Lincoln might be invaded. And so the Midlands seemed a safer bet than the coast. That's how we came to to be in the Midlands. And what did your parents do? And my mum worked for the housing department in Chelmsley Wood, which for people who don't know was a huge, I would say almost experimental housing estate in the, the 80s and went on to the 90s. And my dad was the telephone engineer for a company called GPT, who I think disappeared. I think they were swallowed by Siemens, a German company, which is uh, a story that will be repeated in many industry. <laughs> At the time that I was growing up, that's that's what they did. My dad now is in IT, and my mum retired two weeks ago. When did your love of music emerge? I guess really you can trace it back to when I was about three years old. I'd go around to my grandma's house and I'd play on her piano. I remember figuring out which notes sounded good together and sort of moving around the keyboard. But it was an interest at that point, not a love. And then, I don't remember this, but apparently I watched the, the BBC proms and begged for a violin when I was about four and started violin lessons. But it was still an interest that point not love the, the moment where I I really fell in love with music was hearing Led Zeppelin and, and the Rolling Stones and just being amazed by these sounds that weren't classical music and, and feeling just full of emotion and there was a need to know what it was 
and what was I hearing? One of my earliest memories was hearing Led Zeppelin and the Rolling Stones being played while my mum and dad were cooking. And it was an overwhelming sensation. It was the, the, the amazing smell of the food and then this music that I'd never heard before. My mum and dad had a, a great record collection. There was this real treasure chest of everything from Mozart and Beethoven through to more modern classical composers like, composers like Ralph Vaughan Williams through the 60s, which was really my mum and dad's time for music and, and the 70s, all the way up to current music. I, I discovered Oasis through my mum and dad. It was their love of music, I think, that, that I caught, basically. And growing up in Birmingham, were there venues, were there events that were important to developing that love of music? I don't remember going to gigs in Birmingham. I do remember playing music live up until secondary school, really. Although I loved Led Zeppelin and rock music, my focus was all classical. So I was in orchestras. Solihull Junior Strings Orchestra was the one that that really made the difference to me. Um, it was conducted by a woman called Dorothy Berry. She was a great woman and we played National Festival Hall. Um, and I can't remember if it was with that orchestra or a school orchestra, but we played Birmingham Symphony Hall as well. And I remember being blown away when I walked into that place. National Festival Hall is awesome, but there's something really special about Symphony Hall. It's just a, it's a really great room. But where music really actually, I think, kicked off for me as something other than classical was when I started senior school, which was Parkall School in Castle Bromwich. They, they had a really good music department and they had some really good music. My music teacher for the first year at secondary school was a guy called Ty Unwin. He's a, a score composer for TV. He's really quite famous and successful in his own right. And he was my teacher. In 1997, when I started there, they had computers with programming software on, which I had never seen and would have been brand new. And now I use every day that I'm in the studio. It's, it's the main tool of the job. He taught us about that, and that was his job at the time, was he was using computer programming software to, to score music for, for TV. And so I suspect it was probably him that pushed that. And there was also a little, they called it a recording studio, but it, I mean, it wasn't. It, it was a room which had some microphones in it. It had the means to record music, but it was by no means a recording studio. But I suspect that's more than most secondary schools had. And we always had a good stock of guitars. So you could go and grab an acoustic guitar, which is really important. Just access to instruments at that age is, is huge. And I think there were a couple of drum kits. And I remember when we looked around that school and we got to the music department, they had an electronic drum machine, which was state-of-the-art technology in 1997 for a, for a school to have. That school, which failed me almost everywhere else, academically, I really didn't do very well. It opened my eyes to the many possibilities of music. There were after-school things as well. So that 
there were bands that were put together by Tyon Wynn and I think I think that was key for my development in music because by the time I left there I knew how to program I could demo a song on a computer I'd learned several more instruments I went to that school not being able to play guitar and left being able to play guitar and had dabbled in drums a little bit too because all those instruments were available so that school that was looking back quite terrible I think probably actually shaped my life massively Birmingham's very own school of rock by the sound of it yeah yeah it, it just had a, a department that people were invested in and people cared about and to me it made a massive difference I used to finish school and instead of going home I would go to one of the school halls where there was a grand piano and the music teachers would stay late and do their marking in the school so that I could sit and basically teach myself piano. And I used to stay there for hours some nights until it got dark and they'd eventually come in and go, you need to go home there because we need to go home. And then, you know, we'd leave. What were your first impressions on moving to Coventry? It was quite an emotional time because it was a huge upheaval. I'd only ever lived in one house for my whole life. And I'd made the friends that I'd made. It, it doesn't seem like that big a move now. It's you know, 25 minutes down the road, if that. But as a 16-year-old, it was terrifying because all of a sudden, here I was in a, a totally different place where I knew no one. And the house we moved to was terrible because it was more expensive over here than it was in Castle Bromwich so we kind of downgraded a bit there and I was just scared to be honest and didn't really know where I was or who I was but I, I knew music I didn't actually have the grades to get into Warwickshire College but I went for an interview anyway and said look I know I don't have the grades but here's what I can do played some piano and played some guitar and said I've taken like grade six or seven music theory and it's kind of like look I can't do maths and I've failed dismally at science but put any instrument in front of me and I'll have a go at it and I'll you know I'll play it and and they basically accepted me and it would have been the first couple of weeks of going there that I met Andy on the bus to go in there. He was on the same course. One of the future members of the enemy. Yeah. Andy had got his own sort of group of friends and he was super comfortable having the time of his life at 16. He just finished school and now he's on a music course doing what he wants to do. And for whatever reason, he just sort of took me under his wing and went just like, my friends are your friends, just hang out with us and made life so much easier for me I'm forever grateful to him for that but in general this place does that it welcomes you and it makes you feel like this is home and our things are your things You've mentioned your love of Led Zeppelin who had of course Robert Plant the vocalist from West Bromwich and John Bonham the drummer from Redditch how conscious of that were you and of the Midlands broader musical heritage as you grew up? The Led Zeppelin stuff, not not that conscious, but I was very conscious of Ocean Colour Scene and that they were 
pretty local. The school that I used to go to rehearse with the orchestra that I was in, I think it's where Simon Fowler from Ocean Colour Scene went to school. I remember one of the mornings that I was going to sit one of my GCSEs, we all met up at a friend's house before and just listened to Ocean Colour Scene. And I had this feeling of, I'm probably going to fail this exam. <laughs> but they're from round here and they're doing that. Maybe I could. You mentioned Andy and you also met Liam, your other bandmate in the enemy at college as well. We spent the whole time that we were at that college not doing our coursework, not following the curriculum that was set out for the music course and basically just taking every available minute to be in the rehearsal room to get better as musicians. I mean, it worked for us, but I don't know as I necessarily advised that's the way to go. We'd gained a lot of experience. We'd played some gigs, but frankly, we weren't ready to take opportunities if they were there. We're going to ask you about your your Midlands memory, your favourite Midlands memory. I wonder if that's going to come in the next section of the story where the enemy really takes off. My favourite Midlands memory, the obvious one, is proposing to my wife on stage at the end of the enemy story. But in actual fact, one of the most magical moments I've experienced in the Midlands was watching Noel Gallagher soundcheck in the Rico Arena playing Half the World Away, which is one of my favourite Oasis songs. We were supporting on the tour. It was the final tour that Oasis did. And I remember standing in that arena, wondering whether Coventry would even have been on their radar for that tour if we weren't the support. I'm wondering whether in some small way we had something to do with Noel being stood in that arena in the middle of Coventry singing that beautiful song. Whether we had anything to do with it or not, it remains one of my fondest memories of the Midlands. I was immensely proud of Coventry that day because without the people of Cov, the enemy wouldn't have happened. You know, the support that we got from, from Coventry as a city enabled us to be on that Oasis tour, which in turn possibly meant that Oasis came to Coventry. It was just a, a beautiful day. And I, and I joke about the Jaguar, but genuinely driving to that gig in a car that I know says made in Coventry in the door sill made a, you know, it made it even more special. I got pulled over on the way for <laughs> overtaking on Chevrons. But um, but it, it will probably always be one of my most proud days. In, in in anywhere, not just the Midlands. Tell me about the role that Coventry and its people and its gig venues had in your ascent. Without venues like the Jailhouse and the, the small room at what was called the Coliseum at the time. Which is where you made your debut? Yeah. Yeah, without those rooms to go and cut our teeth, we wouldn't have had that head start those size venues are so important and it's why we've tried to create a smaller space in this venue to give bands that opportunity to cut their teeth but also the Hope and Anchor pub where we played our, our second third and fourth I think gigs as the enemy that wasn't a music venue 
it was a football pub really but they were open-minded and they welcomed us and said yeah all right bring your weird instruments in and make some noise a few gigs later bonehead from oasis was in the hope and anchor in that pub watching us play and be unique who just signed the kaiser chiefs were in that pub and warner brothers the, the, the two heads of a and r at warner brothers had driven up from london to be in that little pub because they said yeah play a gig and welcomed us just to give us these small opportunities to to cut our teeth without those by the time warners are in the hope and anchor we wouldn't have been good enough and it, it wasn't just the venues it was the bands there were there were a few of them the whole musical community in Coventry supported us frankly even before we were that good and you've returned that compliment haven't you you still live within a cv postcode people who know your song we live and die in these towns well you just on the perimeter now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but still cv and you supported the herbert art gallery's bid for the art fund prize in 2010 you've been a big backer of coventry city of culture and when you announced that the enemy we were reforming for your 2022 tour the first advance tickets for that show were given to the coventry fans who'd come to watch you playing solo at this venue it's kind of a no-brainer that could only happen in coventry it it's it is always the most special gig on the tour and there, is, there are some great gigs. There are some cities where it goes more nuts, especially when you get up sort of Newcastle and Glasgow way. But there's a warmth in Coventry and there's this feeling that we're their band and that they are their songs. When we announced this reunion, there was no discussion as to where we would announce it. It was just assumed, yeah, it will be in Cov. The people in that room, they're the core fans who have stuck with me for the last five years while I've been playing solo and I wanted them to get it first. I didn't want a bunch of companies or ticket types or scalpers, whatever you call them, to be able to get those tickets. And it worked beautifully. It was sold out by the time I got home that night and I went home going, it's a victory, we've sold the gig out. Kind of knew we would, it's not that many tickets. They, they were all in the hands of the right people. And the forerunner of this venue, the previous Empire was where you proposed to your wife Kate as well. There's a lovely circularity to that. Yeah, Kate's a, an amazing DJ and she was DJing the night there. And there was a lot going on that night. I was much more involved in the day to day sort of running about of running a venue. And in the middle of it all, I just noticed she was mixing in key and in relative keys, like relative majors and minors. And I was just like, that's mental. I've never heard anyone do that. And then she tried to throw an inflatable banana off the stage into the crowd and fell headfirst into the pit. There was genuine concern for her safety. Genuine concern that she would sue us. <laughs> um, but it meant that I got to spend a bit of time with her while we were waiting for the ambulance and just thought she was really lovely. And um, over the subsequent weeks, fell in love with her and, and yeah, ended up proposing to her on the exact spot on the stage where we first met, um, a few metres away from where she fell. <laughs> Beautiful. A Coventry romance, a Midlands romance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Who is your Midlands hero? Jeff Thompson. So Jeff and I met um, whilst working on We'll Live and Die in These Towns, the musical at the Belgrade Theatre in Coventry, which was a musical that, that Jeff wrote based on the songs from the enemy's first album, We'll Live and Die in These Towns. And he is the most inspiring person that I've ever met, and I've met some people. And for people who don't know Jeff's story, he worked in a factory. He's got an autobiography called Notes from a Factory Floor. He's a screenwriter. He struggled with alcoholism. And as you say, he's a, a, just a great inspiration, a Coventrian and a proud Midlander as well. I have no intention of writing any more music. Jeff has this thing where he goes towards the struggle. He goes towards the hard thing, doesn't take the easy route. And so... It made me think, what's the hard thing that I don't want to do, first of all? What do I want to stay away from? Well, that's writing music, because I've got this fear that it won't be as good as we'll live and die in these towns. And so, okay, go towards that. Okay, so we're going to write a record. What's the hard way to do that? Well, the hard way is to make it not a commercial thing. Don't take the easy route of using primary colours, use the same old three chords and write the easy to latch onto choruses draw upon some more of the classical and the the jazz stuff which is much harder to sell and is much harder to produce in a studio the difficulty level just gets notched up so okay let's go towards that all right what's the record going to be about well what's the hardest way we could do this well, we could try and string a narrative through the entire record the way that i've just seen jeff pull a narrative out of all living down these towns where there wasn't a coherent narrative, but he constructed one and then strung it through. Okay, which then puts immense pressure on the songwriting because you can't just write a lyric that sounds good. It has to make sense in context. And and even beyond that, how do I push what we're doing lyrically other than this narrative? So as a challenge, how do we make it as profane and, and sexually explicit as possible? in a way that isn't distracting, that works? And how do we bring that all together and make it sound good? Jeff told me something while we were working together at the Belgrade. He said, if you chase the money, the art will suffer. But if you follow the art, the money will come. And I applied that to that record. And we planned for that record to make a loss but I would have gone towards the difficult thing, like Jeff said. And um, the record, even before it was out on pre-sale, made back all the money that I'd spent and then made profit. The music industry wasn't involved. There was no record label, no publisher, no distribution. The whole thing was a, a resounding success and it wouldn't have happened were it not for Jeff Thompson. Finally, Tom, often the Midlands is unrecognised, I know you share this view, that it's underappreciated by the rest of the nation. So what is your Midlands manifesto? I, I think there's a reason that we're underappreciated. Manchester is a fantastic city, but Manchester shouts about its own successes. London's entire economy is based off self-promotion and if you go to Scotland, there's this immense sense of pride of we are Scottish, we're different and we're proud and we're, you know, we're, we're great in, in various ways. 
if I could instill one thing into Midlanders, it's to be proud, to be less self-deprecating. We're almost apologetic. We need to shout about the things that we do well, and we do a lot well, and we need to support each other, and it's just fundamentally about being proud. And it's um, it's something that we could do better, is to, to shout about our own successes. Made in the Midlands is an original idea by Andrew Smith, who is also the producer. The researcher is Molly Davidson, and the executive producer is Richard Berry. Sound design is by Dan King, and the music is composed by Maya Miller-Lewis. That's me. We're all from the Midlands, like our host, Adrian Goldberg. Tom Clock, thank you. Pleasure. Next up on Made in the Midlands, a sporting legend in Coventry who started life in the outer reaches of the Midlands. Even though we were in the Midlands, the TV that we used to get invariably was Yorkshire. So we'd get a cracking picture from Yorkshire TV, put Midlands TV on, you couldn't see anything. <laughs> Why not subscribe to Made in the Midlands wherever you go to get your podcasts to hear from Steve Grizovich and a host of other famous Midlanders. We'd also love to know about your own Midlands masterpieces. Email us at madeinthemidlands@loftusmedia.co.uk. Do share the podcast with anyone you think might enjoy it and please leave us a review as well. It all helps to get us noticed. Made in the Midlands is an original commission by the Coventry UK City of Culture 2021. Proudly produced by Loftus Media. Thanks for listening. Ta-da!